found another sermon on the pulpit, so I guess this is the one you all want me to preach, right? Is that the one? I don't know whose notes those are. I'm sorry. I just threw them on the floor. Oh, what a joy it is to be in this building. I love this church. This is my church that I grew up in. I now have a new church. This is my church I grew up in. I grew up with Neil. So if you want to know who I grew up with, I grew up with Neil. And all the other gray hairs in the building as well. <laughs> Derek, our lead pastor in Tucson, asked me to communicate um, what a joy it is for them to be able to send me here. But also, he said in the text, and also express our gratitude to that church. Well, I can give you my personal gratitude because you all, this church, uh, the men in this church, the women in this church, particularly one woman who's going to be in our next service, my mom, faithfully preached the gospel uh, to me, helped me see my need for the Savior. Um, but it would be awkward for me to say, thank you for sending me to Tucson. <laughs> that would feel weird, but I know what Derek is getting after. There has been an encouragement by adding another guy to the staff for Derek. It has released Derek to pour his energy all the more into preparing the gospel preaching every Sunday. Instead of all the other things that Derek would have to do as the sole full-time guy, it's great to have another guy. He can unload some of those efforts too. So in that case, thank you. And that's what Derek is after. If Derek was here, he would look you in the eye. Those that have served faithfully in this year and released us and sent Lisa and I on as we relocated out there for family and another church that's part of this church. Thank you on behalf of our church in Tucson, Sovereign Grace, Tucson. It's on West Ina Road. Feel free to relocate and join us. <laughs> I've been hitting all my friends up today. Uh, all our kids... Say hi, of course. Scotty, the youngest, and Alex and Lauren, the eldest. I'm sure she loves that. We call Lauren the matriarch of the family because <laughs> we love her dearly. They all say hi. And our three grandsons that are with us, um, little Nolan. We call them No Joja. Nolan and Joel and Jack. They would say hi as well. If you could capture their attention just for a minute, they would have no idea who you are, but you would know them right away. Uh, they are definitely little Wilkins. Last year, in particular, with Scotty and Melody, uh, we walked through, I can honestly say in our family, what I thought we had walked through a number of dark periods of time. We walked through one of the darkest periods of time, again, with another child and his wife as little Everett was born. We had him for three months and then we lost Everett. And we also buried Everett twice last year. We buried him in California. I stood and led the graveside service for my son, my hurting son and his wife as we buried little Everett. Suffered from a horrible heart deformity and he survived an amazing surgery but a complication hit. The, doctor has no, uh, the doctors have no idea what happened and we lost him at three months. So we buried him in California. Scotty and Melody, in God's providence, relocated back to Tucson, and we, they moved Everett to Tucson, and we reburied that little boy. And it was a hard time. We're going to be preaching. I'll be preaching. You don't preach, but that's okay. You preach to yourself. But I'll be preaching out of Second Psalm. But I want to introduce 
the Psalms to you just briefly. You are well fed in this church by the preaching diet. I know that because I've sat under it for more than a decade as Ricky faithfully preached the gospel. As the other men that have shared this pulpit faithfully preached God's word to me, a desperate, needy guy in this church. So you may know these things about Psalms already. Psalms themselves as a unit serve numbers of purposes, but by and large, it's to serve us in great and seemingly insane difficulty. The heights of joy and the depths of difficulty, the Psalms come and they speak to our lives. They speak clearly and hopefully. So if you take me back just to a moment uh, to a gravesite that we drove by actually on our way here. We drive by little Calvin, we drive by little Everett, and they're about uh, 75 feet from one another in the same graveyard. As we drive by, this psalm stands true in our family. I can say this wholeheartedly the psalms have served us this way. My soul, in Psalm 63 8, my soul clings to you. How we have needed God so bad, but my soul, our soul, his family has clung to God. But this is the only way it was possible. Your right hand, O Lord, upholds me. Your right hand upholds me. It is true, isn't it? I'm looking at my wife. You're wondering why I keep looking at her. She's my wife. This is Lisa, for those of you that are new. We together have clung to the Lord. But his right hand has held us. Well, let that serve as an introduction as you turn with me, as if you would stand as we read God's word out of Psalm chapter 2. You may have arrived this morning and the world is wonderful for you. You may have arrived this morning and you barely got here because of how dark. It may be. Psalm 2 has encouragement for you. I think you and I will be surprised by what is in Psalm 2. We may be surprised that things are actually worse than we thought. We'll be surprised, God willing, we have a hope that is better than we thought as well. So let's read God's word together. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of, your, ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how I I need you. I might as well close my Bible and go home if you will not meet us this morning. So my prayer is that you would meet us. I pray that the congregation, including myself in this congregation, that your smile would be on us as the word is preached. I pray that every heart that has been bowed low through suffering and difficulty and bewilderment would be encouraged. And that through this word, they would have hope in you again. God, I pray for any person present, which may be many. Things are going great. They feel and know they're close to you, and they sense it. I pray that their hearts would soar all the more to the heights of heaven and glorify you. Take no glory for themselves. Lord, we all need you. God, in a room this size and with this number of people, there are those present who are without you and do not know you. Rescue them. Rescue them from your wrath. Save them. Let them experience the smile of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus, receive all the glory and be exalted. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. At the center and revealed throughout the whole book of Psalms is this overriding theme. Just read the Psalms at length and you'll discover the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah King, keeps emerging again and again and again. And just on a little personal note, the men in my community group out there are going through the Crossway uh, book series. It's a study series of the ESV, and we're going through Hebrews. And so while we're in this book study, we're finding out the book of Hebrews keeps taking us back. And as the filter, which is what we believe and a hermeneutic should always be our study and knowledge of the works, always be informed by this, the New Testament. The New Covenant informs the Old Testament, not the other way around. We we see through a grid. We see, we see the filter of the New Testament on the Old Testament. And you'll see that in Hebrews as it takes us back again and again. And one that is repeated again and again in Hebrews is what we would find here in Psalm 2. In particular, it would be down there in verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That emerges again and again throughout the Psalms. And here in this psalm, Psalm 2, the first three verses reveal that, it reveals what every generation faces. You and I in this generation right now, America or not, third world country or not, every generation faces this, trauma, fear, distress, 
evil and hate and destruction, paralyzing dilemma of war. And that war, by the way, at first seems to be against one another, and it's absolutely horrible. Men and women in this room are scarred by real physical war. But there is a worse war that's been raging from the beginning. And it is a war against God, against his holiness, against anything that comes from him that is pure. We have right here repeated or stated three different ways in verse 1 and 2. The nations, the peoples, the kings. Commentators are super helpful on this one. This is a kingly psalm. It is going to talk about the kings, but every time it references the kings, it doesn't mean like them. It means them as representatives of us, the people, you and I. Them meaning our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. Those three, first three verses reveal, reveal an amazing thing, though, that they're raging against God himself. We, we have, we have close the amount of time to describe what's happening. Well, in this royal song, this kingly psalm, it heralds the greatness of God, our king, the greatness of the king that God has placed over his people, God's king. We find that actually occurring in this text. And here, in particular, we know this is referring at first It's referring to King David, and found in this royal psalm, if we could call it that, is also the grander prophetic proclamation of a promised coming king, a king of kings that will rule God's people on the throne. We're going to discover in the text, actually, that king has already been placed on that throne That king is God's son. I'm cluing you in. If you're wondering where the message is going to go, it's here. God has placed his king on the throne. It's already done, and it cannot be undone, and that king is the son of God. Jesus, the son of God, is this king, and the people and the kings of this world rage against him. Now we begin to understand when the New Testament says, when Jesus says, they will hate you because they hate me. It's not the other way around. It's like, you Christians or you people, it's like, no, you, Lord. Well, then, of course, I would hate you. We're going to consider this in two points. The first one is the kingdoms of this world rage. The second point, the sovereign king responds. The kingdoms of this world rage. And the second one, the the sovereign king responds. Oh, dear Lord, someone reset the clock back 20 minutes. Can we do that? Does that work? It kills the second service when we do that, right? Point one, 15 minutes into the message. (laughs) Oh, Lord, we're going to move quick. I remember Derek saying in the pulpit recently, I just edited out two pages. I think I have 17 I've got to edit out. Point one. Verses 1 through 3, they describe these people, these nations, these kings in particular, as being opposed to the Lord. And by the way, they're not passive in their disregard for God, like they don't pay attention to him, or they just kind of do their own thing without 
this consideration of God. No, they are on the move against him. They are advancing against him. Look with me in verse 1, if you would. Why do the nations rage? They rage. We'll look at that in just a second. The kings of this world set themselves and they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They rage against the Lord. And Charles Spurgeon, I love this 19th century preacher. If you're not familiar with him, look him up. Charles Spurgeon preached in the 1800s. Thank God for him. This raging is the roaring like a sea, tossed to and fro from relentless waves, wave after wave as the ocean in a storm against the Lord. John Calvin, I think it's John Calvin, made this comment. They may not realize that they're doing this against him as well. So it's one of those things that they have got up with a will against God, but they're unaware that they're actually against him. Give them a little bit of time. Get to know them a little bit. You're going to find out, oh no, they have actually set themselves against God. This is why I personally believe there is no such thing as a complete or ultimate atheist. No, they rage. They rage against the one that they do not want to regard. Well, verse 2, they are allied against God's king. So not only do they rage, this roaring and this coming against and this constant wave against God, they actually go out and find partners in this. They set themselves and they form alliances with each other in verse 2. They set themselves and are allied together against the Lord and against this king, his anointed beginning that prophetic language. Certainly David the anointed the anointed one, Jesus. They are assembling their troops in our vernacular, setting up lines of communication, plotting out their attacks, getting all their IP configurations figured out so they can securely communicate with one another. It's all real, and it's all raging, and it's all got an aim, and it's against God himself. And then verse 3 helps us understand why they're doing this. Read with me, verse 3. So all this plotting, all of this raging, all of this alliance against the Lord, this is what the reason is. Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. They, they desire, and this is what underlines all their motives and intentions and scheming, the age-old problem that is seated back in the garden. They rage against God because they themselves want to be God, but it starts with they want to be free from the Lord. They already know they are, in a sense, captive to. They feel the boundary of God, if I could say it that way. They feel his cords wrapping around them. They can only go so far. And they sense it and they know it. They know their limitation. And they know it's God that has placed this limitation against them. And so they rage against it to be set free. Had the opportunity to evangelize and talk to a young man that has grown up. I mean, from I remember this little guy playing cars with them when Lauren and Brett got married. This was 10 years ago. Great young man. But he is, he's at that age and he 
admits he's not a believer. So we're digging in my son's backyard. It's the best way to evangelize. Make him sweat and then talk to him about Jesus. So we're digging. And I mentioned, and I said, I just asked him a question. I said, what? You know these things. Do you believe that they're true? He quickly would say yes. He believes in God. He believes God sent his son. He believes Jesus is the Savior. I said, why would you say you're a non-believer? And his words was, because I feel captive in it, and I want to be free. I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. Now, you got to know this young man. He's super honest. I thought, wow, I would have never told anybody that. But I thought, oh, that was me. But I can't tell anybody that. i got good Christian you know, folks at home. I can't go home and tell them, hey, I want to be free to do whatever I want to do. No, actually, I'm privately trying to do whatever I want to do. This young man was like, no, I want to be free. This is the age-old problem. Ask Adam and Eve. It goes back to the beginning. The kingdoms of this world, the governments and administrations and governors and judges and congressmen and senators and directors and chancellors and magistrates and prime ministers and monarchs and warlords and drug lords and mayors and superintendents and emperors, on and on and on, all the rulers, if you want to call them that, all the influencers of this world, they are in constant cosmic rebellion against God when they refuse to acknowledge him and glorify him. Their depravity is revealed in their policies, their unrepentant heart and their slaughter of the, uh, of the innocent, their persecutions, their tyranny, their robbery, their bribery, their debauchery, that word debauchery, meaning they're living as if there is no consequences. Wow, if there was ever anything founded in the scriptures built on that, I want to be free from anything. One is the, con- the consequences of our actions. Their debauchery and their evil alliances all ultimately directed at the sovereign king of heaven. We cannot ignore the weight of the first three verses in this. But there is a phrase that we'll briefly look at. We're going to move on to point two. And it's here in verse one. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The question isn't what is their motive? The ultimate question isn't what is their motive, which points to they burst their bonds. This is a surprise in the text. This is what they want, but the opening statement is taking us somewhere. Why is all this going on? And the word reveals it's in vain. So, yes, it is super rebellion. It is un, it's immeasurable Cosmic rebellion against God. It is in vain. They rage and they plot, but they do so in vain. And how can this be in vain? It seems like the people and nations can do whatever they want. Does that seem that way? Just consider whatever news source you've got, whatever feeds you've got, you're just thumbing through them until you get the one you want. The nations are raging and plotting against God constantly. People are shaking off any kind of self-control and, again, only doing what seems right in their eyes. Wickedness and depravity seem to just continue to be the rule of the day. Why? How is this possible? This all looks like it's winning the day. They look now like they're getting everything that they want, operating completely free, regardless of any repercussion or accountability. How can we say that's 
in vain. It seems like it's successful. And what will bring it to an end? If it is in vain, what will bring it to an end? How will their plans come to nothing if they're in vain? You know what, before you and I go on, I think it's right for you and I to ask ourselves, is this not also me? Before Christ, certainly, and at times still tempted. Sin, right at my elbow, what, what is dogging me every day? It's this. I want to war against those cords and bonds of God so that I am free to live however I want to live. Go and read James. That's the targeted argument. Those that say, hey, I can believe in God, but I can live however I want to live. This is our ongoing dilemma. And isn't that not you and I doing this? We war and set ourselves up and we plot. Sometimes we even gather friends around us. We are right to join the psalmist when David declares in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. It is against you, Lord, all my sins are directed. It's not just my wife when I look at someone else. It's not just my kids when I demand of them like a tyrant. Lord, I have set myself and plotted against you. This is our sinful dilemma. He defines our our sexuality, but we want something different. He defines our relationships, but we say no, and we go after what we want. He says love, and we hate. He commands purity and holiness, and we run as fast as we can at times straight into depravity. He rules over the nations in peace, and we seize our moment during these times and become tyrants. There is, there is a great truth and shift in the text right now. All of this is in vain. The hope is it will come to an end, finally. All of their plans, all of these sinful plans will utterly fail. And how is this possible? Verses 1 through 3, they paint such a bleak, all too true picture of this world. The kingdoms of this world do rage on and on and on. But verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It answers the question, how is, this, how is it possible that this is all in vain. That's the answer. The sovereign king responds. But look at his response. God is not wringing his hands. He's not in heaven as if all the nations on the planet are raging against him. He's not sitting in heaven like, oh my gosh, what in the world am I going to do? Every effort I make, they just turn against me. Every time I try to reach in and save, they just keep turning back. They ignore. They move on. What is it? What is it that I'm going to need to do? Actually, what we find out is his will and his rule and his creation and his design, his kingdom, over all of it, it will remain, and none of it has been ripped from his hands. None of it, not for a moment. God holds all he holds in an open hand as if he could say, Neil, I'm sorry I keep looking at you like you're the uh, crazy world. Take it. 
Take it, you kings of the earth. See how long your rage will last. Take it. There is a sense, we're going to get in the text, that God reveals to them very clearly, give it a try. Try. Imagine just for a moment uh, a shaft of light coming through the blinds and in El Paso a lot of dust flurrying around in that shaft of light. You all have seen it. Once I realized there was dust in the air, I didn't want to breathe anymore. (laughs) And on one of those particles of dust, on one of them, you and I are standing there, and illustratively, please, the illustration will break down, but it's as if the Lord stands, and in the shaft of light, on one of those specks of dust are all the kings of the world, just you know, whatever it looks like. How, how, I mean, imagine in your mind, I know it's weird, I'm not trying to attach some physical aspect to God's immensity, but if we did, that sounds blasphemous, but if we did, imagine the size of their swords, their communication lines, they're on a dust. I, I, honestly, God could breathe in and they would just all disappear into his respiratory system. That's, the, that's what's happening in this region. Why is it in vain? It's because the sovereign one of the universe holds it all together and you will not thwart him. That's the feel and sense of the text. Now you and I should in that hit the dust. He sits in heaven. He sits in heaven on his throne in that verse. He who sits in the heavens laughs. I love what the commentators helped on this one. No earthly king and no earthly, no worldly kingdom has power enough to even concern him enough to stand up. Oh, he's attentive. God is not unattentive. Remember, we're not functional deists, or we can't be functional deists. So God is out there somewhere. It's like, oh, hey, they're raging over here. And he like turns and finally, no, it's in his face this is happening. He doesn't even have to stand to address the matter. He does not stand. He sits, and he laughs at their raging. There's a progression. He laughs at their raging, the sitting and the laughing. He holds them in derision. And all of this is to paint this picture, revealing God's despising scorn, his despising scorn on man's sinful and limited reign. This war, this coming against God in his mind is laughable. His contemptuous mockery of all their pitiful plans and arrogant declarations of freedom against his rule. Sometimes when I, I I don't know what your feed is like on my phone. Sometimes I'm like, and I only follow like three people, Ricky, Todd, and Neil. Do you have something I can follow? You don't. Okay, well, I can't follow Neil. But there's enough in there to make me begin to privately panic. Oh, my goodness. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm just scrolling through the Lord in this sense. This should be hopeful to us that he has a mockery, mockery towards that attempt. And that hope begins to build, actually, at this most. This should be the moment that lays us in the dust. But those that belong to Christ should marvel and worship and be grounded and hope. None of it. Scroll. None of it. None of it will ever finally stand 
it will end. You and I can be at rest and at peace in God's kingdom as these kingdoms rule. Kingdoms of this world will not be able to rage on and on because God responds. And the wickedness will finally come to an end. But here's another change in the text. So he who sits in the throne and, or sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds him in derision, verse 4. But here is where now it gets even more pointed. I love the I love the centrality of the gospel of this church. I love the centrality of the gospel. I love the central object of the gospel, Jesus Christ, because then now he is about to emerge in the text. Making a beeline for the good news or making a beeline to the Savior in the text, God, in verse 5, speaks and he speaks to them in his wrath and in his fury, in his wrath, and he terrifies them in his fury, that would be enough. You could put a period at the end of that. But that's not what the text says. He speaks to them in his wrath, and they're terrified. He terrifies them in his fury with what he says. You know, I think if God, I'm about to, If God spoke to the kingdoms of this world and said, this is not going to last, this is not going to last, this is not going to last, they'd be like, yeah, whatever, it's going to last. But this statement gets their attention. He says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 6, as for me, (laughs) remember, the dust particle and then the Lord saying, and as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In his fury, God says this, and this terrifies them. Charles Spurgeon says this, He has already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. That raging, we're ruling, we're going to win, we're taking over, not you, only us. Spurgeon says he has already done what the enemy has seeks, seeks to prevent. While they are proposing, he has disposed the matter. Jehovah, 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 new word for the Lord. Don't quote me on that. Jehovah's will is done, and man's will frets and raves in vain. I love this. This is where Shai Lin should grab Spurgeon's word and write this song. Spurgeon says, God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. He is telling the kings of this world, I have put my anointed on the throne, on that hill that is over all, that hill that you want to break your bonds against, my people, my righteousness, my holiness, all that is about me. You set yourself against that? I have already put a king over you. This terrifies them. In a way, there's a sense as if the nations and the kings are all just like, just like a wave, like the scenes that we have in Lord of the Rings. They're just coming over like a, a sea of evil, just pouring in like, what hope in the world do we have? And they arrive, and they seem like they're going to slaughter everything. And they look up, and they realize, oh my gosh, God was here before us. And it's all over. That's why they're terrified. 
He has disposed the matter. Spurgeon is right. Nothing is going to stop God. And now they begin to see it. Look with me, if you will, at the beauty of this text. Verse 7. I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. So not only does he speak and he speaks to them, I've already set my king. Now he turns to his king and he says, you're my son. And that's an announcement to them as well. The king that I have put over you, it's my son. The son king that comes from God. The son of God. Jesus, the Messiah, is God's king. He is announcing to them, not only is my rule over you and has always been established over you and you cannot thwart my rule, I've gone ahead of you. All of this, all of what you're doing is in vain. But I want you to know this king is my king. And my king is my son. My son today I have begotten you. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5. To any of the angels, did he ever say these words? You are my son today, I have begotten you. To any of the priests, did he ever say, You're my son today, I've begotten you? The answer in Hebrews is clear. No. No, I've never said that to any of you. I've said that to one, my son. I've said that to one, Jesus of Nazareth. Hebrews 1.3 says, after making purification for sins, there's now a change that begins to occur that's pointing us back to what is being said here. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Between 7 and 8, there is this king. This king is God's son. This king is God's son. And the son is Jesus. And there's this beautiful kingly statement to his king, his son. Son, ask me for anything and it is yours. What a great statement of God's favor on his son, but it's also the fact that it is established. It's just beautiful. It's already done. Just ask me. It's already given to you. You've already done it because all you have to do is ask. It's all yours. And what an evil attempt it is on Satan to come to Jesus in the temptation and say, hey, just bow down to me, and I'll make you a king over all these kingdoms. What an evil pushback in God's face on that little speck of dust. Son, name it. Verse 8, the Son of God, King Jesus, inherits the nations. God's Son, Jesus, is the sovereign king over all, over all the people of the earth, over all the kingdoms of the earth, over all the nations of the earth. Hear that the Son of God is the King of kings, the king of these kings in particular, the kings that plot and rage against the Lord. Jesus is their king. He rules over them. There is a day coming, also in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. In verse 9, that this king will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in the pieces, into pieces like a potter's vessel. Oh, one of my favorite things as a kid was to take my BB gun and to shoot a light bulb. Because like, like that light bulb just ceased to exist. It's shattered. Well, this king 
He arrives in the face of all this war and with one wield of his iron rod of judgment. No kingdoms gone, destroyed. That day is coming. He will break them with the rod of iron. In Psalm 1-4, the wicked will be like chaff that the wind drives away, taking the wheat and tossing it in the air, and God just blowing them away like the dry leaves of the chaff. The hulls of the seed just carried away like everything in your backyard in an El Paso wind. The Lord just wipes them away. The rebellious nations and kings have set themselves against God and a day is coming that they will see that they are ruled by him. On that day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The day that is coming on which King Jesus rides in on his horse, swings that rod, and immediately dashes all of this sinfulness into pieces, on that day, he will wield that final rod of judgment. On that day, hear this, all of you present, on that day, it will be too late for some. Because between Verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, You're my son. Today I've begotten you. And in the sense, on that day, the nations are going to be given to you as a heritage. Well, we know from that filter of the New Testament, something amazing has occurred. Before all of what happens, beginning in verse 8, King Jesus, instead of coming in judgment, he will come to save. And this king, he will shed his blood on a cursed man's cross. God's king, his only begotten son, will give his body to be broken for this world that rages against him. God's king, to be set on Zion, his holy hill, Jesus, the son of God, was made to be robed and crowned first in a very different robe, a robe draped over his bloodied body, a very different crown, one of thorns jammed on his head as heaven's only true king would first be spit upon as a blasphemer, punched in the face by the kings of this world. King Jesus would be handed over to be tortured by another raging king of this world who mocked him and put the placard over his head, Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus would not ascend up first the holy hill, to Zion first. He would ascend the hill of Golgotha and be nailed to a criminal's cross. Instead of God standing in fury and defending his beloved son, he, his holiness, perfect right, his holy, perfect and righteous son bears the sins of sinners and receives upon himself the full force of God's wrath, the full force of God's fury, all of God's derision should be on us, is on his son. And in that sense, the king of heaven in that moment stands, looks at his son, the sin bearer, mocking and contemptuous over all our sin. Jesus, God's son, before he will rule as God's righteous king 
he will rule from a cross as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of this world. That includes all of these sins that have raged and plotted against him. On that day, when that judgment comes, it will be too late. But today is not that day. It is not too late. Turn to Christ even now. Turn to this King of heaven. God has already, in that sense, set him on the throne. Look to the King Jesus. Repent of your sin. Why would you not come and repent of your sins? It is in vain for you to turn against Christ for the rest of your life. He is real. He is present. And he is coming back. Believe in Christ and you will be saved. The application of the message is what we have finally in verse 10. O kings, be wise then and be warned, rulers of the earth. Come, come, fear and rejoice with trembling. But hear this phrase, kiss the sun. The picture has been bleak. It will all come to an end. But the hope is amazing. The last statement, the last statement in the psalm is the first statement in Psalm 1, which is really the other bookend of the section. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who's him? The son, the one the Lord has called. And that word kiss means to pay homage to him, submit to him, believe in him, come to him. Turn away from all of these other kingdoms. Turn away from all of this other rule that you want. Turn to Christ. Kiss the Son. Believe in Him. All the words of wise, be wise, and be warned, and fear, and rejoice, and trembling are all found in believing in Christ, kissing the Son of God. I'm going to end as the band comes forward with a portion of a hymn out of the Lutheran hymnal. I think it's number 610. If you brought that with you today, I'm just kidding. In the name of the hymn, I don't know why we name songs this. Well, I do. We don't anymore. We probably should. The name of the song is, Will the Judge Descend? (laughs) Oh, Lord. Here, verses 4 and 6 together. How will my heart endure the terrors of that day when earth and heaven before his face astonished shrank away. Ye sinner, seek his grace whose wrath ye cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of his cross and find salvation there. Now we have this is a summary statement out of verse 12. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That word blessed means happy. Happy is the man who takes refuge in no other king but King Jesus. I'm telling you, if you put your trust in the kings of this world, the end is only destruction and it will be in vain. But happy, happy is the man. Put your trust in Christ. Believe in Jesus. You will be happy, happier than you ever have been. And the day is going to come finally when we see That king, face to face, pure joy. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that the last words of this portion of your word would point us to the word of Christ himself. 
Jesus, you, the word. May all our happiness be found in you because we have come and we have kissed you. We have come and we have submitted ourselves to you. We throw ourselves before you and we ask for your mercy. God, I pray for anyone present that has never done this. God, by the power of your spirit present, save them. Draw them to yourself. They cannot of their own will come to you, but you can in this moment help them see how vain it is for them to rage on and on and on against you. Show them the beauty of your son. Remind them of the wrath to come, but grant them happiness, happiness forever in your son is my prayer. God, for your church, I pray that we'd be the happiest people on the planet when we remember that we raged along with this world and you came. And before you came with an iron rod, you came with a sinner's cross and you made a way. God, I pray that all of our worship, all of our singing, all of our clapping of our hands, all of our hands would be raised to you in joy because you are our king Jesus thank you for making this possible it's in your name we pray amen